You're listening to Kitchen Table Finance. Join Dave Shotwell and Nick Nauta as they cut through the complexity of financial planning and serve bites of investment advice that are both personal and practical. Hey Dave, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Nick. How are you? I am also doing very well. Thank you, sir. Is it just me or does the sun shine every time we do a podcast? Uh, It's like like the clouds have broken. (laughs) I'm seeing the sun for the first time, probably the first time in November right now. I think our podcast uh, is so moving that uh, it's changing the uh, the environment around us. (laughs) Skies are blue. Yes. Time for a podcast. So we're going to try something new today, Dave, and I hope this is something that kind of catches on and we can continue to do on a regular basis. But that is just taking a look at, I know you and I both do a fair deal of reading when it comes to retirement planning, personal finance stuff. And it just kind of dawned on me Mm -hmm. that... I am a person who loves to read headlines of things that I'm not super interested in, like (laughs) college football or, you know, political stuff going on in the Middle East. And I also am very aware that that's a dangerous thing to do because most of these headlines are designed to get you to click through, right? Right. If you just read the headlines as this is an absolute fact, you don't actually click in and figure out what they're talking about or why it may or may not make sense. Right. And so I have this assumption that that's what people do with personal finance. Like with a lot of those topics, it'd be good to have a curator, right? Right. Exactly. Right. (laughs) So, so here's our, our curated bespoke list of the stuff we've seen in personal finance blogs, posts, uh, sections of major newspapers over the last couple of weeks. That's right. You and I are the weirdos that actually click in and read these articles and give them thought about what they're saying and what may or may not be right. (laughs) Well, and I'd like to think that while I may not know much about other stuff that I read, and there's a lot of it, at least with this, I I feel like we can help guide other people along the journey, right? That's right. So our goal is to go beyond the headline for our listeners to let them know what this article is saying and why it may or may not be important to you and how you think about things. So up first on the list today is an article from the Washington Post about a bucket list life goals. And it's not necessarily so much about creating a bucket list, but it takes a different view on are there some life goals that maybe you should let go of? And it struck me as interesting because we always kind of, you know, we live in a society that is all about setting and achieving goals, right? Mm -hmm. Like (laughs) we don't, you know, in America, we don't really do failure well. We don't really do, hey, we're going to set this goal and then, you know, go on to something else when we don't get there. Um, That's Mm -hmm. not kind of how we're programmed or that's not how kind of society views things. So I found it very interesting and the kind of, You know, just along with this, there's always been this analogy of putting rocks in a jar, right? Like if you fill up your time, you want to put the rocks in first to make sure they get done and then fill it up with sand and water and all the other little stuff around it. Right. But nobody ever questions whether or not you're putting the right rock in there, right? Right, right. And so this is an article really about figuring out which one of those rocks that you want to pursue and how to prioritize them, but also reprioritize them. And so the author actually talks a lot about how his dad had always talked about 
wanting to learn Spanish and going to Mexico or Spain, one of those, I can't remember exactly where, like that was one of his big goals. Mm-hmm. And when he finally gave up on it, it was kind of like a sense of relief because he knew he just had other things that he wanted to accomplish and that yeah. wasn't it anymore. And I think that is just a great reminder that just because you have this bucket life goal, you're going to change and things are going to change. Right. And it's okay to let go of some of those. This is something I've been thinking about in other contexts a lot personally lately is like, like what, what is it about that goal that makes it appealing right now? Is it the challenge of learning a new language? Is it the thought of going somewhere different and exciting? Don't right. get wrapped up in the like specifics, right? Right. Yeah. But be, but, but like, what is it about that that's important to you? And, and, and a kind of a, kind of another thing there too is, at least for me personally lately, it's been thinking about the things that, like, am I really doing it because it's important to me? Or am I, like, is my goal to go to Yosemite driven by the fact that everybody goes, you know, if you're going to go to a national park, you go to Yosemite. You know, is that, is that what's important? And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, or, you know, there's a lot of different contexts you can steer that to, but I really like this idea of, you know, reevaluating that bucket list and really thinking about how it might change over time. And yeah, and it absolutely will. And it should change, right? Like (laughs) it will, a couple of things that sparked me is interesting based on what you said there, Dave. And one is when we went through and did the life planning training, one of the things was always like, what happens if somebody has a life goal that you know they can't achieve, right? <laughs> right. And, right. And it's interesting because they're, you know, you're bound to run into them, right? Yeah. And what kind of the takeaway or how to think about that was, it's not so much the goal itself. It's more yeah. about like, what do the emotions spark, right? Yeah. So if your goal yeah. is to have a house on the ocean, but you know you're never going to afford the, a $10 million house on the ocean... The idea was, why don't you, you know, visualize yourself in that place? Who's around mm-hmm. you? What are you doing? What are you feeling? Because all of those things can be recreated. Right. You can't necessarily own the ocean, but a house on the ocean, but you can recreate right. those feelings of who's around right. you. What are you feeling? Right. What are you doing? And so I think that strikes me as interesting as it relates to the kind of chuck it list of you might not get the ultimate goal, but you can probably more than likely recreate the feeling some way. I had forgotten about that from the kinder training when I was thinking about this the other day. And uh, you're absolutely right. It's, it's about like finding that essence of the idea, which, you know, kind of to segue, and I'm going to skip one on our list because I think this is a natural segue. Uh, sure. You know, one of these articles is a flexible goal, have, you know, having flexible goals for happiness and mm. success from mm-hmm. Darius Faroo. And, you know, kind of along those same lines is don't get fixated on the specifics so much as the idea, right? He gives a great example of, I want to earn $100,000 versus I want to earn more than last year, right? Like that's just another, like you can get, you can achieve earning more than last year and not necessarily get to that 100,000 mark and still feel really good about yourself. Right. It doesn't mean you you failed just because you didn't reach a specific dollar amount if you, right. if you move the ball, right? Right. And that goes back to, and I think that we did a book review mm-hmm. on the gap in the gain, which is yes. don't focus on how short you were, for, focus on how far you've come, right? Like right, the gain right. of where well, you were and where you are now. The other thing that, that I was reminded of when I, um, when I read this article was uh, Morgan Housel's talk about, you know, for most people, 
what really what really matters with money is being able to buy control of your time. Like making a specific goal of like I want to retire at 62 with X dollars. Really what you what would make you happy is just having more control of your time and more flexibility mm. over how you spend it. And that doesn't, you know, you don't need to get as wrapped up. You know, that's what you really should be working towards is right. is getting that that ability to have that independence and that freedom. And then you can decide when you want to retire. Because you might get to 62 and decide you don't want to retire. Yeah. You know, or that, or, and it may not be having to do with finances. And, and you and I as planners, we, we, I think we talked about this just off to the side a couple of weeks ago that this, that, that idea is kind of in tension with the idea that sometimes people do better with specific goals, even if you know that it's going to change. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, like being able to say to somebody, we're going to try to have X dollars in your flexible spending fund by, you know, next December gives them a concrete thing to shoot for. That sometimes helps. Like, okay, that's a thousand dollars a month and I need to, you know, come up right. with that in my budget and work towards that. That can help. But at the end of the day, if it's $10,000, they're not a failure. Right. Yeah. It's like trying to balance those two ideas as a, as a planner can be an interesting juxtaposition. Yeah. Well, I think the other part that's somewhat concerning about a fixed goal is it's especially when it comes to money, it seems like when you get to that point, it's never enough, right? When you're right. so focused on, hey, right. I want to earn $100,000 a year. The first thing you probably start thinking about after you hit a hundred is, well, maybe I should earn, you know, two hundred thousand yeah. dollars here, yeah. one hundred and fifty, right? Like, unless it's you're always a moving target, unless you're using that money in such a way that it does create that underlying happiness or work you closer towards having that freedom and control, it's probably not going to matter, right? Yeah. yeah, and that's the benefit of a flexible goal. It's not necessarily about the dollar amount. It's about What's the, you know, what, what do I get out of getting, when I get to that point, what am I feeling? What am I doing? What am I able to do that I wasn't able to do? Right. Yeah. Well, I, I thought this was a really good blog article and, and I think it's a good one to share. Yeah. And I think, you know, I like how he ended up where, you know, smart goals still being Mm -hmm. specific, but only for things that are in your control. Right. Yeah. 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 (laughs) I think that's a great way to look at that. You know, it still makes sense to be specific and goal oriented, but do it with things that are in your control, not, you know, not worrying about the things that you can't control and and aren't going to be able to get there because of that. Or you get there on accident and you didn't really have anything to do with you. Right. (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Way to go. So we should probably back up because I think the, the one we skipped over since those two were connected, I think is, is a fun one to go back and talk about. Absolutely. The article in the, the Wall Street Journal from last month about the, the least romantic date night. That's right. The least romantic date night. And that is the uh, financial date night, right? Like, right, right. <laughs> and it, it actually went into a lot of what I thought was really helpful, like thought process around like, mm-hmm. if you're actually going to do this and be intentional about it, you can still have fun with it, right? And yeah. then kind of the purpose, the main purpose behind it is if you look at money, it's it has been and for a while and probably will continue to be one of the leading causes of divorce, right? Right. That's the biggest source of, of marital stress. Right, exactly. And so the idea behind it was, is there what, you know, the main goal is you want to be having these conversations with your partner, right? Yeah. The more open yeah. you are, the more you communicate together, 
the science backs it up, like the better your money life will be. But it doesn't necessarily have to be, hey, let's sit in front of a computer and have a spreadsheet conversation and get mad at each other or, you know what I mean? Right. You can have fun with it. And their idea was, you know, actually having a money date where you can go out, you can even dress up, you can go to a nice restaurant and have the yep. conversations yep. around or, how you're spending money and why and what you need to do to be successful. Yeah, or that's that's the night you order in from the nicest restaurant in town, I think was one of the things they right. they talked yep. about. Or, you know, save that nice bottle of wine you got, uh, you know, at some special occasion, set mm-hmm. it aside for for that night. And uh, which uh, made me chuckle a little bit because uh, I think uh, the few times my wife and I have done something like this similar, it was more like we sat down and like muscled through it before we could go have fun. (laughs) You know, it's like, like, okay, we can't, we can't, you know, go, we can go out to dinner and we can get a bottle of wine and have a good time. But first we got to do this chore, you know? So, and I've had, I've talked to clients that have tried similar, like, like I've never really sat down and said, this is what you need to do with anybody. You've Mm got to, you know, make a financial date night. But I have talked to clients kind of anecdotally have said, oh yeah, you know, we, we had a, we had it, we did that over dinner, you know, the other night and worked through it. I've never had anybody make a habit out of it though. And I think that's probably... I think, it's a, I think it's an interesting idea. Yeah. I mean, if you can, I think that's kind of the point is like, if you can make it fun to some degree, maybe it will be more of a habit and it won't be such a chore. And that has huge benefits of having consistent conversations around this stuff. That ties into a whole a whole bunch of habit forming concepts. But yeah, if you if you tie some kind of reward to it. And the other thing is to come up with a framework where right away you're going to see some successes from doing it. If if you can pick some pick some small things that you t- can tackle together like hey, we need to we need to find a way to reduce what we're uh, what we're doing here or you know, rethink how we're spending that particular part of our budget and then see some success a month or two down the road, you're more likely to then take the next steps, right? Right. And I, I thought it was interesting in all the examples. My favorite one was this idea of a pitch meeting. Yeah. I actually had an example of a guy who wanted to like spend their resources on a new bike for himself. <laughs> yeah. And he had, yeah. had a pitch yeah. meeting with like a PowerPoint yeah. and all kinds yeah, of I stuff. Yeah, I was picturing like Shark Tank with my wife and yeah. kids. Like, <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> like, here's what I want to do. <laughs> you buy into this. <laughs> But, you know, the, the, the point is very real, right? And we say to yeah. clients a lot, you know, it's a team sport, right? If you're not, if you Absolutely. guys, you guys have to get on the same page because you're sharing yep. the same balance sheet. So, yeah. And they actually, I think the end result of that was they made a good compromise where he sold his old bike and, you know, some mm-hmm. different things, but mm-hmm. uh, I just thought yeah. that was interesting and fun. So that's a good read for anybody who's like looking for ways to open those communication channels with their spouse. So the next one on our list, I guess we can't get rid of, you know, we can't go through an entire month without talking about inflation in one way, shape or form, right? right? (laughs) And so there's this idea that's come out of the summer spending spree, and that is what they're calling funflation, right? Yeah. And, you know, the Wall Street Journal wrote an article that, you know, things like live event prices have increase significantly. And now we're at the point where maybe they've gotten expensive enough that 60% of Americans say that they're going to cut back spending on live entertainment due to that cost increase. So I'm thinking like, you know, I know obviously everybody heard about in some way, shape or form more than likely the Taylor Swift concert and 
that, you know, the billion dollar gross and all the, you know, inflationary prices around how much those tickets were. So right. I think a lot of people like went out and spent a lot of money on some of these live events and were kind of at the point that they got so expensive that it's starting to turn people away. It'll be interesting one to see, you know, I, I feel like as Americans, we're, you know, we're good at saying we're not going to do things, but then we end up finding ways to spend that money anyways. <laughs> right. So will those prices come back down? Will people still keep spending on them? You know, stay yeah. tuned. Hard yeah. to say. But it was you know, definitely interesting that the cost of admissions and fees rose faster than the price of food, gas, and other staples. Yeah, you know, and, and a couple of things come to mind. First of all, you know, we always we always are talking to people about spending money on experiences and memories and things like that versus stuff. And this kind of fits the bill. So it's a little, you know, I'd love to see the price of luxury watches go up faster than uh, Taylor Swift and baseball games. But, uh, you know, that's kind of like the inverse. And then just the idea too that you know when, when we when we think about inflation my mind always goes to the idea that well if the price gets high enough people will stop doing it and then the price will come back down right right and we've right. probably just gotten we're just getting to the point where people are like that really wasn't you know that concert was great but it really wasn't worth what I paid or what I did for it maybe we're not yeah. there I don't know but you know it does the market does self-correct a little bit yeah, it's it's uh, interesting. We we have our own, I guess, our own local tie-in to that would be, I, and I don't know if you've looked recently, Dave, but I've been poking around at some Detroit Lions tickets now that mm-hmm. they're actually supposedly good again. I mean, I'll, res- <laughs> I'll reserve judgment on that until the yeah. end of the year. Couple, I, I always like Thanksgiving Day will be the you know if they can if they can look decent on Thanksgiving Day that'll be the uh, yeah. 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 Well, I mean, that's interesting because, you know, they, you know, those ticket prices, you used to be able to go very pretty inexpensive. Yeah. And now you're talking about, you know, two to $300 just to get in the building. So I've seen a drastic increase in those prices. Some of that has to do with how well they're playing and how many people want to go. But also it's that, you know, idea of a live event, right? I'm a huge football fan, but I decided, and this had nothing to do with the quality of the Lions play on the field. To me, at a certain point, football became more of a TV sport, at least professional football Mm -hmm. than an in-person sport. And I don't know, you know, I kind of decided 10 years ago, I wasn't going to go to another NFL game. Yeah. So, you know, that price, that price for me was lower despite being a big football fan. So, you know, everybody's got their own, their own level for fun stuff, right? All right, moving along. I think we got a couple more. This one is on the the rise of the mass affluent. So, what does that mean, Dave? Never mind the one percent. Many millionaires are where wealth is growing fastest. I didn't. I don't love the title of the article, but it was an interesting idea. And this is from the Wall Street Journal from a couple of weeks ago, looking at what the rise in inflation and generally strong investment markets over the last several years, you know, the recent history notwithstanding, I guess, that, you know, we're seeing, we've seen a definite rise in what 
you know, what they term mini millionaires. But I would say, I would, I would just, you know, say like the, the middle class and upper middle class in America has done a lot better than I think most people would guess in terms of growing their balance sheets and wealth. Yeah. Interesting. You know, when you think about what's going on, obviously, if you're just reading the headlines, (laughs) you might think that, you know, the market's not doing great. There's this real estate crisis. And and that isn't necessarily not true. It's just affecting different people differently. So this, you know, if you think of the millionaire next door who's got his house, maybe they have Mm -hmm. a mortgage, but they probably got it a couple of years ago at below 3%. The value of their real estate's going up. Their portfolio has actually gone up in value. So they've had a lot of positive things and haven't Mm -hmm. necessarily been as affected by the rise in, you know, interest rates or the rise in, you know, inflation than you might assume. Right. The article does not blow off the idea of income disparities and that, you know, that everybody is better off than they were 10 or 15 mm-hmm. years ago. But the, it all it does a pretty good job of com- combating that misperception that only the only the ultra wealthy are, are seceding in this economy. So last on our list, Dave, and this is actually an update from our episode 113 that we did in April. And that is there has never been a worse time to buy instead of rent, according to the Wall Street Journal. (laughs) So we talked about this in April. And these are some updated numbers from that discussion in April. But according to this article, the cost of buying a home versus renting is at the most extreme since at least... 1996, almost 30 years ago. And I I was really surprised to see that it was worse now than it would have been, say, 2005, 2006. Yeah. But essentially, their estimate is, on average, it's 52% more expensive to buy a home than to rent one right now because because of mortgage rates and property value increases. Yeah. I mean, as far as like new entrance into the housing market, you got a double whammy of... House values have continued to rise and mm-hmm. mortgage rate interest rates have continued to rise, although it does look like they went down a little bit this week with the Fed pausing. Yeah. But they're still, you know, at that seven to eight percent range, depending on what you're getting into. So you've got higher prices and you've got higher costs in in terms of getting a mortgage, and that's kind of a double whammy. So when you look at that compared to the cost of rent, which has also gone up a little bit, but not nearly as fast as the cost of buying and getting a mortgage at those higher interest rates. Um, So that's kind of the dynamic of what people are looking at in terms of housing costs. To me, a lot of that just comes down to the individual level and talking about First of all, different markets are different. More importantly, or you know, at least on a on an individual level, is talking about like, why do you want to buy a house? What what are your goals? Mm-hmm. And you know, it's it's very different. You know, depending on your time frame, depending on what your options are, what it is about renting that doesn't work for you. You know, there there can be a lot of reasons why it's still worth it to buy a house. It's just mm-hmm. not as easy to say it's an automatic decision. I've had conversations with clients recently that are wanting to buy a house. The big, like they own a house that a lot of couple of them that I've talked to have owned a house. They need a bigger space. And, you know, yes, it's going to be higher now, but not necessarily forever. I think 
Right. If you're going to be there for a long time, what people fail to kind of realize sometimes is yes, your payment's going to be higher, but also think of it in terms of your payment's not going to go up, right? Like if you have right. a 30 year mortgage, your payment's going to stay the same. Yes, your insurance will go up. Yes, your taxes will go up, but yes. that's not nearly as big of a portion of what your principal and interest will be. If anything, interest rates will come down and you'll refinance and that payment will actually right. go down. But your right. income during those same 30 years should be going up if you're right. you know, continuing to work. Right. So you got this dynamic where every year your housing costs actually get cheaper over time, right. less expensive in comparison for most people. That's that's often lost. So and again, it's, it's just a matter of like, you know, is this, are you buying a house because yeah. you want to be here for the next three to five years and then you're going to leave? Or do you want to buy a house that you can raise your kids in for the next 20 years and don't see yourself making changes? Or right, right. Well, and I don't think you're going to see a lot of people talking about flipping homes for here for a while. No, absolutely. Yeah. So interesting, going back to the number side of it real quick, uh, 52% higher than the average apartment to rent. Back in 2006, that premium was 33%. So quite a bit higher back in 2006. Yeah, that really surprised me. So that's a good read though, if you're interested in the nuts and bolts on on how that works. Well, that was our list for the month of October, Dave. So yeah. That was fun. Enjoyed it. Uh, To our listeners, if you have an article that you are reading and want to pass along, we would love to take a look at it. You can Mm -hmm. email email us that at info at srbadvisors.com and uh, tune in next month when we review what we've been up to and what we've been reading for November. Dave, as always, it's been a pleasure. Gather round and follow the Kitchen Table Finance Podcast to learn about money and simple ways you can invest right now. You can find more practical advice at srbadvisors.com and contact the team for personal planning by emailing info at srbadvisors.com.